God's approved workmen. We'll be looking tonight in uh, chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. This text tonight is part of a larger context in which Paul is charging Timothy, and by extension, Christian leaders in the church of all time, to, uh, on what his duties are as an approved workman. We looked last week at verses 14 through 19. You'll recall in those verses that Paul is charging Timothy to remind his hearers at Ephesus to remember first all that Christ is, all that he is and all that he's done on their behalf, to endure the persecution that they're facing as believers in the first century in light of the coming reward, particularly of reigning with Christ in the future, to stay faithful to Christ knowing that he will stay faithful to them, and to avoid wrangling about words, which leads not to edification, but to the destruction of the hearers. And we see this as a recurring theme in Second Timothy, the need to hold on to sound doctrine and to avoid foolish and ignorant speculations. Paul exhorts Timothy to be diligent in all his work as an approved workman who handles accurately the word of God, his truth, and uses it to edify his people. But he also warns him that as, as he does that, and as he fulfills that role as an approved workman, he's going to face opposition. There are unapproved workmen in the midst of the congregation, not only at Ephesus, but in churches throughout the first century, and I would dare say in churches throughout our time as well. Timothy is charged to avoid them in their empty speculative talk. These men were denying cardinal doctrines of the faith, like bodily resurrection, and they were leading people away from the truth. That kind of false teaching can have devastating consequences within the church. Paul's going to continue talking about that as we work through 2 Timothy, especially next week, the first five verses of chapter 3. But in spite of that, Timothy need not despair, and neither should we. The foundation of the true church as God's house is absolutely unshakable. He's continuing to build on it despite any appearances to the contrary. The Lord knows his own. And they are secure in him. And at the same time, they know him. They know God. Because they know him, they are to abstain from wickedness and lead holy lives, just as he's holy. Well, in our passage tonight, we're going to see that Paul is building on this metaphor of a foundation. And he's comparing the church to a large house. He continues to spell out Timothy's duties as God's approved workman. In this section, and he tells him what he needs to do specifically to maintain his own walk with the Lord. This section that we're looking at tonight is very much directed at Timothy as an individual. He also tells him how he needs to deal with those that are opposing him and his instruction. And even though it is very personal to Timothy, again, there's major lessons, particularly for those that lead in the church. As you can see from the outline, we've divided up this passage into the approved vessel. In verses 20 and 21, the approved path in 22 and 23, the approved attitude in 24 in the first part of 25, and the approved result in 25b. I'm going to start reading tonight in uh, verse 19 just to give us a little previous context for our passage in 20 through 26. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. 
Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these, or from these things, it's important to recognize what the referent of that, it's those dishonorable vessels that he's mentioned in the last part of verse 20. If he cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Let's look first then at the approved vessel in verses 20 and 21. As I mentioned before, Paul mentions this firm foundation of God in verse 19. We looked at that last week. He moves from that very easily to a metaphor of the visible church as a large house with a master overseeing it. This in the first century in particular would have been a house with many rooms. The owner was no doubt very wealthy. The rooms would have had many furnishings. One of the Greek words that's used in this verse, kuos, is a very broad term that denotes all kinds of domestic implements, utensils, goods such as furniture and tools. I think in this context, Paul is talking about particularly serving vessels and utensils for a meal. And you notice the two pairs of contrast here uh, in verse 20. Vessels of gold and silver, those are the same as the vessels of honor, Those would have been prominently displayed and used for important guests. And then the vessels of wood and earthenware were the vessels of dishonor. That is, they were common. They were plain. They were were replaceable. They were probably unattractive and at times even dirty and vile. These would have been vessels that they would have used, for example, to take the garbage out or sometimes even to dispose of human waste from the house. Now, it's important to recognize that the material from each of these pairs of vessels also has significance for both their value and their destiny. The gold and silver would have been treasured. They would have been kept or had good care taken of them and kept for as long as possible. The wood and earthenware, on the other hand, would have eventually been discarded and replaced. They were not as valuable and were easily replaceable. So the question, though, becomes, what exactly is Paul communicating through this illustration? I think the main point is clear enough. Paul's urging Timothy, and again by extension, all those who are leading in the church, and I would say even further application, all of us, as members of the body of Christ, to be a vessel of honor by separating himself from the vessels of dishonor. That's why I made the point to point out the reference of these things in verse 21. He's to separate himself from the vessels of dishonor. So that begs the question, who are the vessels of dishonor? And there's some differences here as to how this is taken. Some take these to be believers who are perhaps either less gifted or less zealous and only fit for the lower levels of service in the body of Christ. And some people who take that view would draw a parallel to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. You can turn there if you like. I'm just going to summarize 
the teaching of 1 Corinthians 12. It's a passage I'm sure that's familiar to many of you. It's comparing the church as the body of Christ with the human body. And there's a comparison between the different parts of the human body, the different prominence and honor that each part of the human body has. For example, the eye is oftentimes more honored or are believed to be more beautiful than the feet, for example. The fact that all are essential, though, for the overall health and function of the body. Paul also warns against one part of the body being envious of another because of its prominence or one part of the body looking down on another because it sees it as inferior and less needed as part of the body. So with that kind of context and setup, let me read part of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 22 through 25. Again, the overall illustration, the overall point of this illustration in 1 Corinthians 12 is the necessity of all the members of the body and the health of all those members in order for the body as a whole to function well. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning verse 22 says, On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which, we, which seem to be weaker from a human point of view are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. That there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So the point in this passage is that all the members of the body have an honor that's bestowed upon them by God. They're all necessary and they're all vital for the body as one unit to function correctly. That, I would argue, is not the line of thought in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to show that by a couple of different ways. First, Timothy is encouraged to cleanse himself, to separate himself from the vessels of dishonor so that he might be a vessel of honor. I think if we take the logical extension of that, that is stay away from believers who have lesser gifts and less zeal. That's not what he's saying. That's certainly not what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 encourages the more prominent members to love and appreciate the less prominent ones from a human point of view. The second argument against seeing these vessels of dishonor as believers is the flow of 2 Timothy itself. I've thoroughly enjoyed studying this letter. I'm learning a lot as I've studied through it. I've you know, I've obviously, I've read through it many times, but I've never taught it before, and I'm just seeing things that I've not seen before. And one of the things I'm seeing is this emerging pattern of Paul's encouragement to Timothy. He consistently exhorts Timothy to stay faithful to Christ and to his ministry of the gospel, and then he'll point to those who are not doing that as an example. And what I want to do is just Go back to chapter 1 and show you a couple of places where we see that. And I think that helps provide us some context for what we're looking at in the passage tonight. So look back at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is Timothy's responsibility. Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, again, he's not saying very much at all about these two men, and we don't have much information about them, but they're certainly not 
standing with Paul in the same way that Timothy is. The next place in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's Timothy's responsibility. And then immediately following, but avoid. Notice the contrast. You see this a lot in Second Timothy. He'll charge Timothy with what he's supposed to do, and he'll say, but don't do this, or don't be like these guys. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Look down at verse 21. That's where we are tonight, actually. If a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's really a summary. That could be a theme verse for the whole passage tonight, as well as a summary of what Timothy's to do uh, and a summary of the verse of uh, 2 Timothy as a whole. But then, as you compare that with what we'll look at next week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, which describes the difficulty of the last days and the character of the men who are within the church, the character of those men that make the difficult, make the times of the last days difficult. At the end of that section, in verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, avoid such men as these. We'll go from that point on deeper into chapter 3. Paul will say to Timothy in 2 Timothy verses, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch. That's a reminder to Timothy that the fact that he has stayed loyal to Paul through this. He's endured persecution and suffering as well. And then what follows in verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving deceiving and being deceived. So we see this alternating pattern that runs throughout the letter. And in light of that pattern, and in light of the context itself is what we're looking at tonight, I think the best way to understand these vessels of dishonor is the false teachers and the impostors that Paul is describing to Timothy throughout this letter and warning him about. Timothy is to cleanse himself from them, to stay away from them, to not be corrupted by their influence. And he's going to spell out more detail what that involves in the verses that follow. He's to do this for what purpose? In order that he might serve the Lord as a vessel of honor. That he would be set apart and useful to the Lord and prepared for every good work, it says. Now this theme of good works is not only a theme in 2 Timothy, but in all the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Again, Timothy and Titus were Paul's right-hand men. They were more than just pastors of local assemblies. They were guys that Paul sent to a lot of different churches. And he ended up writing letters to them, two to Timothy and one to Titus. He talks a lot in these letters. He uses this same phrase to talk about good works. These works are, of course, not works that merit salvation. They are instead the inevitable result of somebody who has already been saved. They're a result of the new birth that God has accomplished in the life of the believer. These are two works that God has prepared beforehand, according to Ephesians 2.10, that we should walk in them. So they're not to gain God's approval 
or to earn salvation. They're done in gratitude for what God has already accomplished on our behalf with a heart of thanksgiving and an attitude of pleasing our master, pleasing the one who's bought us out of the slave market of sin and brought us into his kingdom. They're not only to be present in the lives of leaders of the church, like Timothy and Titus, but in the life of every member. What I want to do is read each reference in First and Second Timothy and Titus that, have, that mention this idea of good works. We'll see as we do that that every group in the church is addressed. And he does divide it up into different groups, but ultimately it ends up being addressed to every member. So I'm, I'm not going to read these necessarily in the order in which they appear in First, Second Timothy, and Titus, but kind of by grouping. The first one is addressed to women. In First Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women, making a claim to godliness. I don't think he's arguing against a lady dressing appropriately and attractively, but he's saying that should not be their primary focus. Their primary focus is to adorn the doctrine of God, is the way that he says it in another place, to be clothed with good works. Concerning widows, in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, he says, let a widow be put on the list, and this list is a list of ladies that could be supported by the church, The first obligation to support widows goes to the family, but there was a place for a woman woman who perhaps no longer had family and met all the qualifications for she to be supported by the church. And they evidently kept a list of such ladies. 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10 says, Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man and having a reputation for good works. Paul also addresses the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. I love his play on words there. These folks are already rich materially, They're also to be rich or abundant in good works, to be generous, they obviously had the means to do that, and ready to share. So that's women, the rich, and then specifically to the man of God or to ministers of the gospel. To Timothy, he writes in 2 Timothy 3, a passage that we'll get to eventually, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then to Titus in chapter 2, Titus 2, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, showing yourself to be an example of good deeds. Now, I don't know why this, Howard, I'll have to ask you this question. Maybe you could tell me why now. In the Greek, it's the exact same phrase, but Titus, at least in the NAS, consistently translates it as good deeds rather than good works. But it's the same term in in the Greek. There to be example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. That is, Titus is to be an example to those good men, to those men, those young men of those things. 
to all believers in Titus 2, verses 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Notice the change there. We all are born into a state where we, our tendency is toward lawless deeds. And part of what God does in saving us and purifying for himself a people for his own possession is make us desirous for good deeds. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, Remind them, that is, the believers there under Titus's uh, supervision or oversight in that church, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a trustworthy statement. We've seen that as well in 2 Timothy. It's another statement that occurs throughout the pastoral epistles. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Notice again how these are things that are charged upon believers, people that have already been justified by faith. The Bible is just as equally clear, clear that we're not saved by works. We can't be. We can't be justified by good works. But we also inevitably will do good works because of what God has done in justifying us in Christ. And finally, or not quite finally, uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 14 says, Let our people, that is believers, also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they, that they may not be unfruitful. And then finally, there's even a reference to unbelievers concerning good deeds in Titus chapter 1 verse 16 these folks profess to know God but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed it doesn't say that they don't do good deeds it says they can't in essence they're worthless to accomplish any good deeds and that's because they don't know God Let's look now in verses 22 and 23 at the approved path for the approved workman. Here Paul spells out in more detail how Timothy can be that honorable vessel that he charges him to be. He tells him, he does this by telling him what to move away from, what to move toward, and what obstacles he's going to find along the way. First part of verse 22 says to move away from or flee youthful lust. Now we don't know exactly how old Timothy was at this point. He's still evidently a relatively young man, especially compared to the Apostle Paul. Youthful lust here, we normally hear that when we think of sexual deeds or misconduct, and it would certainly include that, but the term is broad and it includes more than that. It's the things that younger men, and I can testify to this, I was once a younger man myself, things that they wrestle with, that we wrestle with, Pride, uh, material comfort, loving money, selfish ambition, and a self-assertive spirit. Perhaps, in, Timothy, in Timothy's case, wanting to be more appreciated than he was by the people to whom he was ministering, and tempted towards anger when he wasn't. Jealousy, envy of others, perhaps envy of others' ministry even. Timothy is to flee all these things because they lead to sin, and they undercut his example as, uh, as an example to the rest of the flock. 
as he flees away from lust, he's to pursue or move towards Christian virtue. And Paul gives a list of four here. When we look at those, these are all terms that, that I know this crowd in particular is particularly familiar with. Righteousness is right behavior as, as it's spelled out in Scripture. It's obedience to Scripture's commands. The word for faith here can be either faith or faithfulness. It's the same word. And, and actually, either one of these could work in this context. I think faithfulness may be a better translation here. Timothy is to be a man of integrity, of trustworthiness, of reliability. He's to be faithful. Third is love, love for God through obedience to his word and love for your neighbor, doing what's best for them without regard to oneself. Jesus, of course, said this, these were the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And love is the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's the first in the list of those fruits in Galatians 5.22. And then finally, peace. The believer already has peace with God because he's been reconciled to God through Christ. That enables him to have peace with others. Now, the the first thing that comes to mind as I read that is, well, it doesn't seem that Timothy's at peace with these guys that are opposing him. And I, I think that's true. He wasn't. But that's why Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We'll see that Paul will give Timothy Timothy some more advice about dealing with these guys in the verses that follow. But his responsibility was to pursue peace with everybody, even his opponents. These are all virtues of those who call on the Lord with a pure heart, who have an ongoing desire then to please God and to please Christ with their lives and ministry. And those are the things that Timothy is to pursue. Now, as he flees away from lust and toward virtue... He's going to have some obstacles in his path that he has to deal with. And here Paul says the same thing that he's already said numerous times in this letter, as well as his first letter to Timothy and to Titus. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Don't be drawn in by these guys. Don't let them trip you up. Don't, let, don't uh, argue with them on their terms, because it will only reduce a quarrel that won't accomplish anything and won't edify others. That's easier said than done sometimes, but it's very important. Paul goes on to tell Timothy what his attitude should be, and by extension, again, the attitude of every leader in the church, especially his attitude toward his opponents and how he should conduct himself towards them. That leads us to the approved attitude in verses 24 and 25. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Paul's already made clear that Timothy is not to be drawn in by his opponents and by their speculations because those arguments don't edify. And in essence, he's saying, don't go on their ground. Don't stoop to their level. But what is he to do on the positive side? He lists four things. First, be kind to all. Not just to those that he gets along with well, not just to those that appreciate him, but even with his opponents. He must be approachable by them, even to the ones that are antagonistic towards him. And that's a very delicate balance. I think every Christian leader can testify that he's had at different points in his ministry uh, some opposition within the church. One writer put it this way, the faithful bondservant of Jesus Christ who has great strength of conviction 
and who may have leadership authority in the church, willingly expresses and defends his convictions and exercises his authority in a spirit of gentleness. You've got to have both. There must be a meekness and gentleness in dealing with others, particularly those that oppose you. A Christian leader can't be harsh or unkind. Secondly, he must be able to teach. He must have a desire to teach and the ability to go with it. To refute error, he has to know the scripture. He has to be able not only to know it, but to be able to communicate it clearly to others. And that's what Paul's talking about when he lists the qualifications for elders. He says particularly in Titus concerning those qualifications that a man must be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with with the teaching that is the body of Christian truth that we have in the scripture, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Thirdly, as he does that, he must be patient when wrong. This is probably the hardest one of the four. We all have a tendency, a desire to vindicate ourselves when we're criticized unjustly, and particularly when we're misunderstood. But scripture is very clear that we're not to retaliate when we're wronged or exercise our own vengeance. I didn't know that we were going to read Romans 12 this morning when I was writing my message. I was very pleased to learn that we were. It's one of God's good providences in the way he puts things together on Sunday. I want to read part of it again tonight. It's very interesting to me to see what the motivation is for not taking vengeance. Paul says, Romans 12, verse 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved. Why? Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What are we to do instead of taking vengeance? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. I think in essence it's saying, you'll make him feel bad. If you don't retaliate, if you treat him kindly, if you love him and do good to him, God can use that to convict him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's interesting, as we read through the rest of 2 Timothy, as we get to chapter 4, we see Paul himself giving us a good example of this. He says in chapter 4, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It might sound a little unusual, but one of the things, one of the most powerful ways that you can be strengthened by God not to retaliate when you're being mistreated is to recognize that God, as, as Patrick put so well this morning, will make all things right in the end. Now, God may end up saving that opponent of yours at some point. Well, you can rejoice in that as well. You were once an enemy of God yourself. And if he saves that person and doesn't have to judge him in the end, that's great. But it's not your place to take individual vengeance or retaliation. You're to leave that, we're to leave that with the Lord. And, of course, Christ himself is our ultimate example in this. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now he's talking about Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself 
to him who judges righteously. It's only by the Spirit of Christ living in us that we can do that, but that's what we have to do is keep in mind that ultimately God will judge. He will make all things right in the end. Finally, the Lord's bondservant must with gentleness correct those who are in opposition. This really sums up what Paul's been communicating throughout this paragraph. Notice that he doesn't say, don't say anything. Don't don't deal with it. Just avoid the guy completely. Correction is necessary. He's not backing away from that. But it must be in a spirit of gentleness and with proper self-restraint so that the truth is modeled as it's being communicated. Why is it important that the Lord's bondservant not only hold tightly to the truth, but to do it with patience and gentleness? Well, that's to attain the approved result in verses 25b through 26. That's a twofold result. First, it says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Notice it's, it's far from a sure thing. You can do everything that you're supposed to do as either a member of the body of Christ or a leader in the church, and there's no guarantee that that person is necessarily going to repent. And the reason for that is God is the one that grants repentance. You can't make that happen. Repentance is not a human work. It's like faith. It's a gift of God. It's commanded upon men. Certainly there's many passages in the Bible that command repentance. Men are responsible to repent, and it involves their will in repenting. God uses means like the proclamation of his gospel and the proper attitude of his bondservant to bring it about. But repentance itself comes from God. He will sovereignly bestow it upon whomever he will. Peter talks about this in Acts 5. He says, he, he's talking about Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. It's a gift and forgiveness of sins. Again, later in Acts chapter 11, you remember the context there. Peter's having to defend himself to the church in Jerusalem for eating with uncircumcised men in Acts chapter 10 with Gentiles. He not only ate with them, he delivered a message to them, and they ended up repenting. Acts 11:18 gives the response of this church in Jerusalem after they heard Peter's defense and how those Gentiles had been saved through his message to them. It says in verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down. They were really upset with Peter for going to those Gentiles. They quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The men in 2 Timothy needed this same kind of repentance in order to lead them away from their ignorant and foolish speculations and their opposition to Timothy as God's man towards the knowledge of the truth, the gospel, as it's presented in the word of God. They also need to be led out of darkness and into light. The last part of verse 26 says that they would come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. These opponents of Timothy, some even were false teachers within the church. They're opposing Timothy and leading others astray from the truth. And they're actually, as they do so, captives and agents of Satan, whether they realize it or not. Paul talks about this in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember, there he's dealing with these false apostles. 
And his own words are the best way to understand what he's doing here. Chapter 11, beginning at verse 12, he says, But what I'm doing I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, that is, as true apostles of Christ, in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their deeds. And we've talked about this some already as we've been working through Second Timothy. The early church, from its earliest beginning, had to deal with false teachers in their midst. Jesus, uh, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, talked about how these tares will spring up amongst the true wheat counterfeit believers who are part of the church and part of various congregations they have to be ultimately they have to be dealt with by God and God uses even those kinds of people for his purposes within the church he's the one that allows them in there but he's the one that's going to deal with them in the end these men addressed in 2nd Timothy were held captive by Satan and were doing his will Hebert says that if men will not be the servants of God they inevitably will come the servants of the devil. They needed to know the truth, to come to their senses, and escape from the devil's control over them. In doing so, they would get a new master and be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word to do just that. We recognize that you're sovereign, that you use your word to bring the truth into the minds of those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And I thank you for the way that you've done that in the lives of each one of us here tonight that know Christ and that trust in him. And Lord, I pray that just as Paul commanded Timothy to be a vessel of honor and useful to you and approved for every good work, that each one of us would take that same charge, that we would separate ourselves from false teaching, from those who advocate teaching and doctrine that's contrary to the scripture, and that we would be sanctified and set apart for your good purposes, that we would be equipped for every good work, and that through that, and even through gentle teaching and instruction of those who oppose, you might be pleased to save more and to grow us all up to maturity. Thank you for the time we've had together tonight. Lord, as we go out to various places through this week, may we be bright lights for Christ and for his gospel. We pray this in his name. Amen.